Good evening. Good evening. May I have your attention? Please come in and, and have a seat. Welcome to the Amarillo Reformed Fellowship ARF Spring Teaching Conference. I'm happy to see all of you here. Uh, please continue to come in and have a seat. I am, uh, we are happy to have the Reverend Dr. Lane Tipton back with us. Uh, the title of the conference for the weekend is Christ, Heaven, and the Book of Hebrews. And I believe, as I've discussed with, with Dr. Tipton about this conference, uh, that he is going to be using the book of Hebrews as a, a launching pad, really, to talk about uh, the whole Bible and to point us ultimately to Christ, our heavenly high priest. And so I am excited for uh, what we are going to be doing this weekend and to have Dr. Tipton with us. I don't want to take up too much of our time because I'm ready, I'm ready to get to the instruction and in, in, in the, the Bible teaching. And so I won't say much, but I will uh, just let you know that there, there's schedules in the back for the conference for the whole weekend. So please pick one of those up and, uh, and, and be here as often as you can. Also, there are waters and uh, the snacks and refreshment type things in the back please help yourself and we will have breaks uh, throughout uh, the conference so uh, please help yourself to those throughout the, the, the conference um, <clears throat> if you enjoy conferences like these uh, we encourage you to to give to Amarillo Reform Fellowship and you're gonna have opportunity to do that through the whole conference you'll notice there at the, uh, at the double doors in the back there's uh, a podium with a basket on it. If this is the only session you're able to make it to or something like that, uh, feel free to uh, give if you would like and like to help uh, provide for more conferences in the future. Uh, encourage you to give. That will be there throughout the, the course of the conference and will also be there Sunday evening as well for the joint service, which will be at 6 o'clock here at Christ's Covenant uh, on Sunday evening. Also want to inform you that we have a new website. Amarillo Reform Fellowship has a new website. It is arfellowship.org. And there's also a place on there where you can give and sign up for monthly giving and things like that if you'd like to help support what Amarillo Reform Fellowship does. Now, want to ask all of you, if you would please, to either turn off or silence your phones during the conference uh, so that we're, there's no distractions uh, throughout it. And uh, with that being said, I'd like now to introduce to you uh, the Reverend Dr. Lane Tipton. He holds the Charles Cray Chair of Systematic Theology and is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is also the pastor of Trinity Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Easton, Pennsylvania. And so he is both a professor and pastor. He is a pastor theologian. And um, the Lord certainly 
has uh, gifted this man, and uh, we, we are blessed to have him here this weekend. And so, uh, with that being said, Dr. Tipton, welcome, brother. challenged with uh, a a lack of common sense. Let me see if I can (laughs) get this going. Um, It's it's a fact. There. Is it uh, good enough? Can you hear me okay? Well, it's a delight to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for the invitation. I am always um, encouraged to come back to Amarillo and to come to the OPC and to come with others of like mind and practice in the Reformed faith. It's just a wonderful time for me. Um, And I hope that the Lord will make our time of the study of his word a real blessing and would seal Christ and his benefits to us by faith as we study his word together. Let's open in prayer, and then I'll try to overview what we're going to do um, in in approaching the book of Hebrews. Um, Up a little higher. Okay, there we go. Is this better? There we go. Good. Let's, let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We praise you that you have loved us from eternity in your Son, and that when the fullness of time had come, you sent him forth to be born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us out of this present evil age and bring us to himself in heavenly glory. We pray that as we study your word that you would fill us with his spirit, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you would encourage us with the truth as it is in Jesus. We recognize that all of our understanding of your word is wholly dependent on the Spirit of Christ at work within us. And so we confess our sin to you. We ask that you would give us your Spirit and you would cause us to grow in the grace and the knowledge that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that you would impress your word upon our hearts and give us understanding that we might know you, fear you, serve you, and love you as we trust in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would consecrate us to your glory during this time of study, that you would give us clear minds and pure hearts, that you would renew our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would cause us to honor the triune God, of whom and through whom and to whom are all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, there are two ways we could approach the book of Hebrews. Um, I teach a class on the book of Hebrews at the, the seminary. And when I do that, I start only with the book of Hebrews and expound it. But that's, that's about a 24-hour class. We can't do that. What I'm going to do instead is try to situate the theology of Hebrews in the context of the whole Bible. And I'm going to do it in terms of 
three distinct but related themes that you find in the Old and New Testaments. The first one uh, and the main theme is this. I'm going to talk to you about what Sabbath rest is. That's what we're going to be looking at. What is Sabbath rest? And I'll give you the definition up front so you can have the picture in front of you. Sabbath rest is being brought bodily by the power of the Spirit of God into heaven for face-to-face -face fellowship with the triune God. That's what Sabbath rest is. It's being brought bodily into His heavenly presence for fellowship. And what we're going to do to organize our discussion, we're going to spend time in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, and we're going to talk about Adam, Eden, the mountain of God in Eden, and the Sabbath rest that was promised to Adam. So the first frame of, of our study is going to be Genesis 1 and 2, Adam, the mountain of God, and promised Sabbath rest. The second thing we're going to look at, hopefully we'll get into it a little bit tonight, but I'm not sure, is Moses, Mount Sinai, and a type of Sabbath rest that he receives while on the mountain in the presence of God. And then the final thing we're going to look at at the end of the day tomorrow, is Jesus, Mount Zion, and the attainment of Sabbath rest in Christ. So that's going to be kind of how this is framed. And the movement, once you see it tonight, once you see Genesis 1 and 2 in this way, you'll already see where we're going. It'll, it will be clear in advance where we're going to go. So, so here's what I want to do. It, it might seem counterintuitive to begin in Genesis 1-1, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to begin in Genesis 1-1. And I want us to think together for a while about Adam, the mountain of God, and the promise of Sabbath rest. And as we, as we get into this, what I want you to think about with me is the way that God lays the foundation in Eden for what is going to come in a typical form with Moses and then a consummate form with Jesus. And you'll see as we start to go. Now, I want to prepare you for this. this uh, do you remember when I was here, was it two years ago? Remember when I walked through Genesis a little bit with you? Okay, that was foundation for tonight because tonight's going to be a little bit more intensive. It's not going to be hard. It's not going to be technical, but it's going to be a little bit more intensive, and I'm going to focus on something we didn't even look at when we went through Genesis uh, 1 and 2. So here's, here's where I'd like to start. I'd like to start with the absolute beginning of Genesis 1-1 and talk to you about what that means. Gen I'm, I'm, by the way, we're, we're already kind of ascending up, uh, you know, <laughs> up, up to the board. So I'll be moving back and forth. I told him that I wasn't able to work out while I'm here, and so the stairs are a real good thing for me. I can, I can move up and down and get a workout. But we're going to talk about Genesis 1-1, and 
And I've got to put this on the board for you to give you uh, a sense of what's happening in the absolute beginning and the way it's going to frame everything that we're going to say. So we're going to spend some time on this. And here's my suspicion. This is going to be possibly new to some of you. So, um, so oh, so let me tell you this. If you have a question and, and, um, and, and something's not clear, guess whose responsibility it is to be clear? It's mine. So, so if you have a question and something's not clear, feel free to raise your hand and, and let me know, and I will do everything I can do, humanly speaking, to make it as clear and understandable and helpful as I can. So feel free to, feel free to ask uh, questions. Genesis 1.1 is what we call the absolute beginning. In fact, let me do this for you, just to orient you. I'm going to read three texts in Genesis 1 and then into Genesis 2 to focus our, um, our understanding on this, and then we'll get into it. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first text we'll look at. Second text we'll look at, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man male in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, um, oh, I'll stop at 29. Then the, uh, the next section I want to read, just for starters, is 2, 1 through 3. The heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1, I know the board's a little small, and I'm sorry, um, but, it, and that's probably a little light. Do you think blue would be better? Blue? That's black. Let's see how blue looks. I think blue might be better. Okay. Here's what I want you to realize. I'm going to put this on the board for you, and, and this is very important structure for you to get. The Genesis 1-1 is what we call the absolute beginning. And the structure here that's so important for us to grasp is that the heaven here is the invisible heaven. Um, it is presently veiled from sight. And the, um, the earth, the earth is what is visible. In the beginning, God created the invisible heavens and the visible earth. That was the very first act 
of creation out of nothing. Then on day two, I want you to see that the visible heavens come into view in Genesis 1-7. On day two, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters, the waters on earth, from the waters that are above the heaven. And on day two, Genesis 1-7, God made heaven. And that is the visible heavens. So, so what you have, and, and the, the clouds, the clouds separate the visible heaven from the visible earth. Most people, when they read Genesis 1, think about this uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God made the heaven and the earth. They tend to think that the heaven and the earth are the visible heaven and the visible earth that we see. That's not... That's not um, accurate. And, and so let me give you some texts that help bring into view the importance of what we're calling the invisible heavens. The invisible heavens. And I want to give you some illustrations of this that I think will prove useful. Um, I want you to think um, for a second with me about what Psalm 11.4 teaches. Here's the question. How are we to think about the invisible heavens that God made in the beginning that are distinct from the visible heavens and the visible earth? Well, in um, Psalm 11.4, here's what you read. Listen to this. The Lord is in His holy temple... The Lord's throne is in heaven. So Psalm 11.4 says that in this invisible heavens, there is what we could call now, let's just call it a temple with a throne that is in heaven. And the psalmist is here saying that when God made the invisible heavens, he constituted it, as a temple where his throne is, is located. It's his dwelling place in the invisible heavens that are above. And in that context, he is seated amidst angels that surround him in glory. Let me give you an example of this. In Nehemiah 9.6, listen to this language. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and that all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and listen to this, and the host of heaven worships you. So, Nehemiah 9.6 says that in this heavenly, invisible temple where God's throne is, Nehemiah 9.6 says there are angels or holy ones who worship the Lord. And, and then 
there's a text that I think makes this really start to come alive. How many of you remember R.C. Sproul's teaching on Isaiah 6? Remember that? Okay, you can turn there, and I want to describe something to you that, that I think might start to help you see this. Do you remember how the tabernacle and the temple had a most holy place that was located on the earth, and there, were, there was an Ark of the Covenant, the wings of cherubim were stretched out in gold, there was a golden lampstand, and there was this golden room that Hebrews 8.5, which we'll look at later, says is a copy and shadow of heaven. Isaiah goes into the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, and what does he see when he enters into the temple? Does he look in and see the earthly copy of heaven? No. He looks in and he sees the Lord seated on his throne. And the train of his robe, which is a symbol of his glory, fills the temple. And there are living seraphim that are encircling his presence. They are circling around his throne in the temple. And this is especially clear here in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. And what do they do? With two of their wings, they cover their feet. With two, they cover their eyes. With two, they fly. And what are they doing in that glorious heavenly temple realm? They're calling out in worship, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven uh, and earth are full of his glory. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that Isaiah, as a prophet, was given vision not into the earthly sanctuary that's a type and copy of heaven. He was given eyes to see the presently veiled, invisible, heavenly temple dwelling of God as he is seated on a throne and surrounded by angels, seraphim that are worshiping him. So that, so that the Genesis 1-1, this, this heaven, what is it? It's a temple that has God's throne in it, Psalm 11-4. Holy ones are there worshiping God the triune God. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, sees this glory. And what does he say as soon as he sees it? He says, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And what? Listen. My eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. Now, what, what does that do? That helps you start to recognize that, that in Genesis 1-1, above the visible heavens and the visible earth is a glorious temple dwelling of God where he is seated amidst angels that worship him day and night. It's, and, and so whatever gets uh, produced in the tabernacle or temple in this lower realm is a copy and shadow of what? Of the heavenly throne presence of God that is presently veiled from sight, but is what? Here's key. It's a real 
created tangible material temple realm that God inhabits. Give you a couple of other texts that might prove useful. Let's see which one that would be good. For instance, Isaiah 66.1. What does, uh, expanding on Isaiah 6, uh, 1 through 3, in 66.1, what does the Lord say? He says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. So I want you to think of it this way. If I, if I were a little more creative and I could draw, there's, there's this throne presence of the Lord and he is seated in heaven, which is his throne. And the earth and everything in it is nothing more than a footstool for his feet. It's, it's, a, it's a, a glorious and heavenly uh, horizon. Now let me, let me give you some, a couple things from the New Testament that might prove useful here. Turn to Colossians 1.16. You can look at Colossians 1.16. And you'll get a feel for this here in a second. It'll start to come clearer. I'll even go to Hebrews here in a second. But what does the Apostle Paul say there? Well, he says in verse 15 that he, the eternal son, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Because why? Look at that text. Because by him all things were made. Things in heaven... And on earth, and then what? Things visible and invisible. There, just think of it this way. Colossians 1.16 is Pauline commentary on Genesis 1.1. And what is the, what, it, there's a little chiasm. Um, well, I don't have room to put it on the board, but it's this. Invisible, visible, heaven, earth. It's a comprehensive account of all of created reality. And here's something we don't think about as much as we should. The invisible heavens are the presently veiled throne presence of God that's, that's, that's real, it's created, but it's not seen, it's not accessed by sight at this moment. And the things on earth, the earth, the visible earth, and the visible heavens, those have been created by the Son of God. He is the one who made all things, invisible and visible, things in heaven and on earth. Now, to, to give you a, an, another illustration that might be useful, Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. Listen to this. And, and this is going to, this just anticipates just a little bit of Hebrews. And I'm giving it to you just as a foretaste. Hebrews 12, 22, what does it say? You have come, where? To Mount Zion. To the city of the living God. To the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to angels gathered in festal gathering. You have come to the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, what's, what's being said there? 
that Jesus now, and, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to get into this tonight, but Jesus, where is he bodily, according to Hebrews 12, 24? Where is he? He has ascended a heavenly mountain where he is seated at the right hand of God. This is a place presently veiled from sight, but it's a temple dwelling where the throne of God is, and not only are angels present, but the spirits or souls of the righteous are present as they have been made perfect in holiness. When you depart from your body, you go to be with the Lord. And the Lord Jesus is in the highest heavens, seated at God's right hand. Now here's what I want us to start thinking about. The focus of your whole Bible is that heavenly dwelling place of God and the question that your Bible raises is this. How can you ascend into that heavenly, holy temple dwelling to have fellowship with God? That's the question that your Bible is asking. And, and if you remember when I was here a, few, um, a, a few, couple years ago, what did I say the whole purpose of creation was? God wants to show his glory and confer himself in a communion bond on a holy people in a holy realm through an obedient federal head. Here's the question. Where is that holy realm? It is in heaven, the invisible heavens. Now, just, just in light of that, I want to talk to you, if, if I can now uh, make it a little more focused. I want to talk to you. Well, this works. Jeremy, this works. I want to talk to you about Adam, Eden, and not Edom, Eden, and the mountain of God. And I want to talk to you about how Adam, Eden, and the mountain of God relate to heaven. Let me see. Yeah, let, let, me, let me see here if we can... Uh, Oh, oh, I need to add one more thing. Sorry, yeah, I was, I was about to jump the gun. Um, in Genesis 2, when God finishes the work of creation and he enters into Sabbath rest and he sits, as it were, on his throne, Genesis 2.2 2 calls this whole reality let me shake it up with different colors here. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. This is the realm of Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest 
is the invis presently veiled heavenly throne room where God as the creator is seated having created the world and all that's in it. So the, the thing I want us to, to look at now is how does Adam, Eden, and the mountain of God relate to this resting realm of God? So let's look now. I want to I revisit Adam as the image of God and revisit Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and Genesis 2, 7 through 17. And I want, I, want to think, I want to think together with you about something that's in these texts. Now, how do we relate Genesis 1, 26 through 28 to Genesis 2, 7? Here's the best way I know how to put it. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is a synopsis of God making man, male and female, after his image and tasking man, male and female with what we call the dominion mandate. What is that? You take dominion over all created things under the authority of God. It's a synopsis of the responsibility of man, male and female, as an image bearer. Genesis 2.7 revisits that same event but looks at it not in terms of summary but in terms of development a linear development from Adam being the first who is made from the dust of the ground to Adam being placed in Eden and given the covenant of works to Eve being taken from his rib so Genesis 2 revisits what is summarized in Genesis 1 and gives you a focused, open, chronological narrative that moves you from Adam's creation from the dust of the ground to being placed in Eden where he's given the commandment, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. So, so the, the, the overview is then given detailed development in terms of Genesis 2-7. And, and we have to recognize this, that the dominion mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, is going to be focused in the probation mandate of Genesis 2, 15 through 17. What do I mean by that? Well, what was Adam told? What were Adam and Eve told in Genesis 1? Take dominion over everything that creeps on the ground and do so under the authority and unto the glory of God. Genesis 2 brings into view one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent who is going to come in Genesis 3 and test Adam and Eve, uh, particularly with regard to obedience to God. And, and whether or not Adam and Eve will live under God's authority and unto his glory in fellowship with God. And so you, you have Adam created from the dust of the ground in 2.7, and then in 2.8, what happens? As he's taken from the dust of the ground, he is moved into the Garden of Eden, and he is told, 
of all the trees in the Garden of Eden you may eat, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, in dying you will die. And he was told to what? To guard and to keep the garden sanctuary. That's what he was told to do. Now, what I want you to appreciate here is that Adam, when you think about Adam, Adam is first and foremost, if you'll remember, remember when I talked about this? He's a priest king. Didn't I do that? He's a priest king. Okay, what does that mean? Well, in particular, when you look at Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. Do you remember that language from last time? And the Lord commanded him, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here's the, here's the question. Will Adam guard the Edenic temple? This, this holy realm, will he guard it in the face of temptation and in the face of the serpent? Here's the question. Will he consecrate Eden as a holy dwelling place of God? And will he keep it and guard it from being defiled by the encroachment of the serpent? Will he do that? Now, the, the language for guarding, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if I pointed this out last time I was here, but in Genesis 3.24, the, the um, cherubim has a, a sword that's facing every direction to guard entrance back into Eden. And in Numbers 18, the same verb to guard that is used for Adam in Eden is used for the high priests to guard the sanctuary. Didn't we do that last time I was here? Yeah, I, I know it's been two years. I don't expect your recall to be, to, to, to be uh, immediate. But, but for instance, in Numbers 18, the Lord said to Aaron and the high priests, they shall, verse 3, keep guard of the tent of meeting. Verse 5, they shall keep guard over the sanctuary, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now, I'm covering this part a little faster because we've done this before, but what does that tell you? What is Adam in, in the Garden of Eden? He's a priest king who is to guard the Edenic temple from anything that would defile it. And he's to do so in a manner analogous to the way the high priests would guard the sanctuary. Any unholy intruder that seeks to enter will be destroyed. But now, th that's the intro. This is what I've talked to you about before. So I expect that to be review. Um, and I went through it quickly because we've done that before. I did it two years ago, and I don't want to repeat and bore you. But now, let me ask you this. This is what we haven't covered yet. And this is kind of the official start of the conference now. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You, yeah, you can review. I just did in about... 15 minutes what I did in about two hours probably then because I, because I want to get to something else. Now, I want to ask you this, and, and this is where it starts to get a little, uh, it, this is where we're going to learn some things that are new. What, now think with me, okay? 
that was all review, and I know we've heard that sort of thing before. Why is Eden to be guarded by Adam? Why? Uh, what's the purpose for this guardianship of the Edenic sanctuary? What's, what's the purpose of it? Well, here's what I want you to appreciate. The, the dominion that Adam has and the guardianship that he's entrusted with exists to safeguard this primary thing, communion with God. Eden is a place where Adam and Eve had communion and fellowship with God. It was a place where God would meet with them and walk with them and fellowship with them as they were his image bearers. Eden most basically, before it's anything else, is the place where God would meet with his people and they would worship him and they would serve him in the beauty of holiness. In fact, um, there's, there's a, 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 a thing that we have to appreciate about the image of God. The image of God is most basically to be understood as created in fellowship with the Lord. When you're an image bearer, you are created to be in fellowship with the Lord and to walk with the Lord. And what that image is most basically about is fellowship. So let me, let, I want to use this as an illustration. Do you remember in Genesis 3.8 where the Lord comes to Adam and Eve after the fall? What is he doing? Do you remember the imagery that's used? Adam and Eve have sinned, and they hear the Lord doing what? Walking. He's walking in the spirit of the day. And what do they do when they hear him? Yeah, they go. They, they, they know that this is the Lord coming in judgment. Why? Because they've just eaten from the forbidden fruit. So if the Lord's coming from that direction, what, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're going this way. And they're going to run. They've already covered themselves with garments that hide their nakedness. And they're going to run into the, the shrubbery to hide from God. Now let me ask you this. Just think about this with me. And, and if this doesn't make sense, ask me a question because this is really important. Do you think that's the first time God ever walked in the garden with his people? It's, it's presented in Genesis 3.8 like it's almost an ordinary, common occurrence. The Lord's walking. But when sin enters the picture and the Lord is walking toward his people and they're in sin, what do they do instinctively? They have the good enough sense to run, right? Get out of here. Why? Because the Lord is coming in thunderous theophonic judgment against his people. He is summoning them to himself for judgment. Why? What did he say back in 2.15 through 17? On the day you eat, you will die. So his walking is, a, is an approach of judgment. But I want to think, think back with me before the fall. What do you think about in Eden before the fall? How would God approach his people? He would walk with them and talk to them. He would fellowship with them and they would fellowship with him. He would be the one in whom they found their delight. He would be the one in whom they found their meaning. He would be the one who 
conferred upon them not only their image, but their significance and their satisfaction. He is the one who made Eden into a paradise land, isn't he? And, and that image of God walking with his people is what image bearing is all about. Image bearers are created by God to have fellowship with God and to find in God himself their highest good and their deepest and most basic satisfaction. And, and, and what we didn't talk about last time is what I want to talk about with you now. And it's a piece of, of, of what we could call topography that is almost always underappreciated because it doesn't occur in Genesis. What I want you to do is I want you to think about Adam, Eden, and Adam as a priest king, and I want you to think about what we're going to call, and I know that's horrible, it's the best I can do, the mountain of God in Eden. And you're saying to me, where is that in Genesis? Well, it's not in Genesis, but what I'd like you to do now, I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. And I want to read something to you that opens up vistas that otherwise are not going to be seen just from Genesis. Ezekiel 28, 10 and following. I want to tell you what this text describes in advance so you're not confused, okay? This text describes the creation, sin, and fall of the king of Tyre using language from Genesis 2-3 as the interpretive framework. And the king of Tyre sins and falls like Adam. He is a fallen son of fallen Adam. He acts like and ends like Adam. So this is a, a prophecy about the fall of the king of Tyre, and it's using Adamic language. It's using language from Genesis 2 and 3 about the creation and fall of Adam. What I want to do is I want to call your attention to some key language that is present in Ezekiel and that helps us understand this mountain image that is located in the, in the Garden of Eden and Adam's relation to it. I'm going to read it to you. Listen. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared, 
You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, and you were on the holy mountain of God. The holy mountain of God, verse 14. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. I'm going to talk about those in a second. Stones of fire. Verse 14. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I banished you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So in verse 14, um, he is placed in Eden. Verse 16, he is banished from Eden and from the mountain of God and from the stones of fire. Placed, verse 14, banished, verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, uh, etc., your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes. On the earth, in the sight of all who saw you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end. You shall be no more forever. Now, what does that text say? It's basically this, that the king of Tyre is a fallen creature in the likeness of Adam. And Ezekiel uses... Edenic language to describe the sin and fall of the king of Tyre in the likeness of Adam. But here's what I want you to appreciate. And if this isn't clear, you ask me and we'll, we'll talk about it. Ezekiel is, is hundreds of years now down the road from what God revealed through Moses about the Garden of Eden. And a particular form of topography appears here through the inspiration of the Spirit as Ezekiel writes about the Garden of Eden and what proves central in Ezekiel's understanding of Eden. It is that there was a mountain of God with stones of fire in the Garden of Eden. And, and because Ezekiel is progressive revelation that gives us more detail than is found in Genesis 2, he helps us see more than what you see if you look only at Genesis 2. And what is that something? Well, it's something like this. Genesis 2... And Ezekiel 28 tell us something that's critical. When Adam and Eve were having their fellowship with God, 
when God would walk in their midst and they would walk with God, where was the focal center of that fellowship taking place? It was taking place on a mountain. It was taking place where God was. It's the mountain of whom? Of God in the paradise land. And on that mountain were stones of fire. And here's what I think the image best is. These stones of fire would form a path of ascent, a movement up to the dwelling place of God on his mountain. And, I, and I'd like you to think of it this way and tell me if this, uh, if this um, um, helps us see this. What does, what, does the, the, um, what does Ezekiel say about Adam in these stones of fire? He says, um, if you look back in 14, I placed you on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You what? You walked. That brings into view now a mountain dwelling of God with stones of fire where the king of Tyre, like Adam, is envisioned as doing what? Walking. With whom would he be walking on the mountain of God? He's walking with God in a fellowship bond. And why stones of fire? What's the significance of stones of fire? It's stones on this mountain that are set ablaze by the glory of God on the, in the midst of this mountain. Adam and Eve were to have fellowship on the mountain of God amidst the stones of fire, and Adam was to walk on that mountain as God walked with him in a bond of fellowship. The mountain of God brings into view these stones that are set afire by the glory of God, and Adam is to walk in the midst of this in fellowship with God. And in, in, in doing that, in walking in that way, what was Adam and what would Eve be receiving from God? They would be receiving fellowship with the God who dwells on the mountain of his own glory. And where is this located? This is located in Eden on earth. So what's the image? Think of it this way. Let, let, let's just imagine this with me and tell me if this makes sense. Adam is on the mountain with God. The stones of that mountain are ablaze with the glory of the Lord who is in heaven. And let's just say Adam is on the mountain and he can look down and he can see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And Adam would say something along these lines to God. He would say, now, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the probation tree. If I eat that, what will happen? Look at verse 16. The Lord would say, I will banish you from this mountain. I will 
banish you from my presence on the mountain. Do you see that? Just as the king of Tyre, in this way of speaking, I banished you from the mountain of God, and, and, and it would be something like this. Not only will you not walk on these stones of fire anymore, but you will not have fellowship with me on my holy mountain. But if you eat from the tree of life and are obedient to me, what would happen? What would be the goal for Adam and Eve in Eden? What would be the goal? Look at the movement. Just tell me if you see what, what we're trying to say. The stones of fire, as he ascends the mountain in fellowship with God, that is the central fellowship bond that Adam and Eve have with God in the Garden of Eden. But what is the nature of that bond? If you sin against me and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will lose your fellowship bond with me. You will be banished from the holy mountain, and my presence will be turned from benevolence and goodness and love toward you toward holy wrath. And you will be banished from my presence. But if you slay the dragon, obey me, what will you receive? You will be translated from this earthly mountain in Eden into what? The Sabbath rest of God. You will be brought from a, let's call it this, this is a place of earthly probation to heavenly Sabbath rest. The movement in Genesis 1 through 2 that Adam is to traverse is the movement from being in the presence of God on earth in Eden to being in the presence of God in heaven. And what's the, what's the fundamental distinction? It's a movement from earth to heaven, from probation to rest, from innocency into glory. The, the, the narrative in Genesis, as it is elaborated in Ezekiel 28, brings into view this idea that Adam was not to maintain Eden in perpetuity. He was not to stay in Eden on that earthly mountain with fel in fellowship with God because as long as you're in Eden and as long as the serpent has not been destroyed, what tree is casting the potential shadow of death in Eden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As long as that tree is present, as long as Adam and Eve have not passed probation, the threat of death due to sin, and more basically, the loss of communion with God is what is being threatened against them. 
So as long as you're in Eden, as long as the serpent is present, as long as you have not been brought to rest, you are in a probationary environment at war against the serpent, and death is threatened against you if you disobey. So what is the, what is the hope? The hope for obedient Adam is that he might rise up by the power of God into the heavenly throne temple presence of God and enter into rest. And when that happens, probation in Eden ends and Sabbath rest begins. And what is Sabbath rest? Sabbath rest is the perfecting and the consummating of what belonged to Adam and Eve on the mountain of God in Eden. Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 is, is telling us that, that in, in light of the broader themes of Scripture, Ezekiel 28 and other places, is telling us that the fundamental movement here is from earthly probation to heavenly Sabbath rest, and it would be a translation of, of Adam and everything in his environment up into the heavenly presence of God, if you think of it in terms of, a, of an upward ascent, or that heavenly reality, the moment Adam passes probation would what? That, that barrier that veils heaven would be lifted, and the glory of the Lord in his heavenly dwelling place would radiate and fill all as it descended to envelop Adam and Eve and raise them and a humanity that would be uh, brought to fruition through them would, would raise them into heaven or would cause heaven to descend. God would cause heaven to descend to earth. Now that, I, I just want you to think about this with me. That starts the theme of God dwelling with his people on a mountain in terms of the pre-fall situation. And what do we say about that? What do we say about that? What do we know happened to Adam? He did not enter rest. Why? He was unfaithful. He was disobedient. And no sooner did he and Eve eat than God began the process of what? Banishing them from his presence sending them east of Eden. What's that? Are we already in an hour? I thought it was 30 minutes. Thank you, brother. Okay, so, so I, I was looking at the clock and I lost track of time. I'm doing that more as I get older and I'm sorry. Um, I truly thought it was 30 minutes. Um, do you see the basic point? Now, th this, this, is, this, is, this is kind of the, the prologue for what the, the book of Hebrews is going to be telling us about Jesus. And let me just ask you this to prepare you for it. And, and let me ask you just to think about this with me. Because I'm going to try to get to Moses tonight. I'm, I'm really working hard to. What, why do you think, now, in light of what I've just told you, why do you think God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai? Why does Jesus ascend to Mount Zion. It's because 
Moses is going to typify what Adam lost because he has faith in the promised Messiah. And Jesus is going to enter into that heavenly mountain as your high priest and king to bring you where he is. But you've got to see, I did this, this is the quick part. I want to spend more time on, on um, Hebrews, of course. But this is the, the introduction to help you see why God is going to address Moses on a mountain and why the book of Hebrews is going to talk about Jesus ascending the mountain of God in heaven. And this is kind of the background of the backdrop. It's been an hour, and so I'll give you a break, and I'm sorry for that. We only have one more hour tonight, right? Yeah. Um, we're going to go, we're going to uh, shift gears. I'm going to try to get you to Moses, and then it's going to be a little, this was a quick one, then I'm going to slow down, and we're going to, to look at uh, redemption in the typical era with Moses, redemption in the consummate era with Jesus, and we're going to integrate this mountain image and the, the uh, communion with God that is had on a mountain. Okay, take a break. Uh, see you in five. Is that good?